Okay, so we're starting this new sermon series in 1 Samuel. Uh, Last year, on the 23rd of September, uh, Greta Thunberg, a 16-year-old climate change activist, gave an emotional speech at a UN summit in New York where she berated um, the global leaders there for their lack of action in dealing with climate change. Listen to some of her words. You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. People are suffering, people are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We're in the beginning of a mass extinction and all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. You are failing us, but the eyes of all future generations are upon you. And if you choose to fail us, I say, we will never forgive you. Now, I don't know what you make of that, whether you agree with her statement or not. But I think it's fair to say there are many people today who have more confidence in 16-year-old Greta, whose own father describes her as a sort of socially awkward recluse, more confidence in her than they do in any of the current global leaders to actually bring in the change that is required. Is it no wonder then that in a recent survey taken at the World Economic Forum, 85% of respondents there said that we do have a crisis of leadership across the world today. 86%. I wonder if you agree. Certainly people in this country, or at least the, the people I talk to, do seem increasingly disillusioned about the main political parties and the leaders of them. People know what values they want in their leaders, what they want them to stand up for, equality, justice, freedom. But it seems people are increasingly skeptical that these leaders truly embody the values themselves or can bring in the sort of future that will work for everybody in society. This leadership crisis, where do we turn? We know how important leadership is. Where is true leadership to be found? Well, look, that's all by way of introduction to our sermon series this term. We're going to be looking at the first 14 chapters of 1 Samuel. And, you know, God's people are facing their own crisis of leadership back then. Um, In the preceding book, Chronology, Judges, right at the end of the book of Judges, we looked at this a year ago for those of you who were here, it says, in those days Israel had no king, everyone did as they saw fit this sort of moral and spiritual decline across the nation because of a crisis in leadership. That's the context as we start this series, this book. But wonderfully, we are going to see God powerfully at work to fill this leadership gap in quite incredible ways and to raise up a godly leader who can bring moral, personal transformation to the nation. So you can see why this is so relevant, this book, for us today, even though it's written you know, hundreds of years ago, and how important it is, it is for us today to see how God works and see how he can bring that same transformation to your life, my life, this nation today. So here's the question, where does it all start? Where did it all start here? Where's it all going to start today? Well, come with me now to chapter 1. We're on page 271. And in verses 1 to 8, we are introduced to a barren woman. A barren woman. Now, like many great stories, this one has humble beginnings. 
Verse 1, a certain man. From Ramahatham, a Zufite, from the hill country of Ephraim. This is just a normal, average, run-of-the-mill type of guy. But unlike many great stories, this one is a real story. His name is Elkanah. He's the son of Jeraham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. Here is a real historical figure. You can check his genealogy if you want. What we're going to be looking at this term really happened. And we're told that this man has two wives, verse 2. One called Hannah and the other Penina. Now that is odd. I hope you think that when you read that. Even though it's here in the Bible and it's here in the Old Testament, it is odd to have two wives. God had always said right at the beginning in Genesis, his good design for marriage is to be between one man, one woman for life. So why does this man, Elkanah, whose name means zealous, zealous for the Lord, this is not very zealous, why does he have two wives? Verses three to five. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh. And verse 4, whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Penina. But, verse 5, to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. So here we are introduced to Hannah. What is the first thing we are told about her? She is barren. She is a barren woman. She can't get pregnant. She can't give children to Elkanah. She can't perpetuate the family name and line, which was so important in ancient times. And so it seems that tragically, this man, Elkanah, has taken matters into his own hands and has found another wife who can bring him children. And we can see one of the devastating consequences of going against God's good design in verses 6 to 7. Where we're told that her rival provokes Hannah in order to irritate her. This went on, verse 7, year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Now, if there is anyone here who has struggled with getting pregnant or is right now struggling to get pregnant, you know just how emotionally painful that can be. Let alone someone in your own home married to the same husband as you, rubbing your face in it. Day by day, year by year, you are such a disappointment to Elkanah. How's your monthly cycle started again? What a shame. Children, lunchtime, ah, here they all come. The pitter-patter of feet, the sound of their voices, mummy. This voice that Hannah desperately wanted to hear for herself, this daily provocation from Penina. Must have felt like a dagger through her heart every time. Barren women were looked down upon in ancient society. Barrenness was one of the curses under the Mosaic law. Here is Hannah, a barren woman in this horrible, hopeless, helpless situation, weeping, unable to eat. 
And yet it is through her that the Lord is going to work. Despite her barrenness, it is through her the child will be born and this great lady will rise up to bring transformation for the nation. Now, let me be clear, this is no guarantee that if you are struggling to get pregnant now that things will suddenly you know, change for you. But it is a guarantee that no matter how hopeless the situation you find yourself in today, God can still be at work through it. This had profound implications for the nation of Israel back then, given their own spiritual barrenness. If God can bring life to a barren womb, surely he can bring life to barren hearts. And this also has profound implications for anyone here today who feels their faith is quite barren, or that the Western church is barren, or that this nation as a whole is spiritually barren. No situation is too hopeless for God. And God has something of a track record on this. For those of you who are aware of the wider Bible story, if you go back to the beginning of Israel, this great turn around at the beginning of the Bible to reverse the effects of the fall, God chooses Abraham, chooses Sarah. Sarah is barren. Sarah is way beyond the normal age for childbearing and childrearing. And yet it is through Sarah that Isaac is born. Isaac's wife, Rebecca, a barren woman. Rachel, the next generation, a barren woman. And fast forward to John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus Christ, the greatest turnaround in the history of the universe. And who is the mother of John the Baptist? Elizabeth, a barren woman. So often God starts, likes to start a new work, a new transformation in the most hopeless and helpless of human situations. Why? To show our absolute dependence on him and that nothing is too hopeless for him. Please take encouragement. Despite the leadership crisis we currently face, Please take encouragement from these verses. No matter the crisis, personal crisis, relationship crisis, work crisis, you may be facing right now. No situation is too hopeless for God. But you say it's gone on so long, it's been so many years, there's been no change. Year after year, it was for Hannah. But change was coming. So that's the first thing to see, verses 1 to 8, a barren woman. Secondly, verses 9 to 28, an unexpected deliverance. Normally, moral reform, spiritual reformation would come through the priesthood and through the religious establishment. And we're introduced quite quickly to Eli, the priest. But very quickly, we realize that he is not going to be the answer to the nation's barrenness. Because in verse 12, if you glance down, Hannah is praying. Eli is observing her mouth. Hannah's praying in her heart, so her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. 
And Eli just can't see what's going on. I mean, he should reach out to her. You're okay? Can I help you? None of that. He just assumes that she's drunk. Oh, this is just ridiculous. Here is you know, the man who's meant to more than anything be the true bastion of spirituality and godliness in the nation as the, as the priest, and he can't even see true godliness when it was right before him, before his very eyes. His perception of reality is completely back to front, and as we will see next week, he is part of the problem, not the solution. He is symptomatic of the leadership crisis in Israel, and if change is going to come, it is going to have to come from elsewhere. One of the now personal shocks for me um, with the general election last month was the disinformation campaigns which have now gone completely mainstream. I think we saw it a bit with, with Brexit you know, four years ago with the infamous Badad and uh, 350 million pounds a week for the NHS, but four years later it was just everywhere. Conservatives creating Facebook adverts with misleading edited snippets of a BBC video. Labour claiming leaked documents showed the NHS as a whole rather than simply NHS drugs is up for sale. Lib Dems creating leaflets that look like local newspapers. And even when people set up fact checkers to try and disentangle truth from lies, during one political debate, the Conservative Party even changed its Twitter handle to look like an independent fact-checker. Now look, I mean, there's always dirty tricks going on you know, as a feature of election campaigns, but the level of misinformation that we have witnessed recently, levels which are normally the reserve of totalitarian states, has now just become the norm it's just common practice. It's just politically expedient. If there's going to be a solution to this leadership crisis, then where is it going to come from? And here in 1 Samuel, it comes from Hannah. A socially rejected, a religiously disempowered, barren woman whose heart is closer to God than the most senior religious person of the time. I mean, what do you make of Hannah here? What a beautiful picture we get of her in these verses. She's not bitter towards God. Even though he's closed her womb, pours out her soul to him. Doesn't hide, suppress her emotions, brings them all to Lord, brings her tears to him. Does not give up after all these years, but continues to pray year by year. Does not rebuke Eli when he completely misreads the situation, is humble before him. May your servant find favor in your eyes. And just look at her prayer in verse 11. Very much the heart of this section. Verse 11, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head like a Nazarite. Now, three really important things to pick out from this prayer. First, notice how Hannah addresses God. 
Lord Almighty, in the original Hebrew, Lord of hosts, comes up 235 times in the Bible. This is the first time it is used from the lips of Hannah. The Lord of armies, the Lord of omnipotent power, the Lord who can do anything he pleases, like bring life from my barren womb. Lord, please work in me, Hannah prays, knowing who God is, what he is capable of. Secondly, Hannah prays using the same words that God himself used with Moses at the time of the Exodus. She says, if you will only look on your servant's misery, same word to describe God's people before the Exodus. If you'll only remember me, same word. Lord, as you acted in the past for God's people then, won't you act for me now? She prays in line with God's action in the past. Third thing to say, Hannah offers to give her son straight back to the Lord. Should he be pleased to give her a child? Now you might say, isn't Hannah bargaining with God here? I'll give you this if you give me that. Twisting God's arm a little bit. There is no manipulation from Hannah here. She's very clear about her own standing before God. She describes herself as a servant of the Lord. We've just seen how humble and godly she is. Think about for a moment what she is vowing to do. To give her son back to the Lord for all the days of his life. Forgoing so much of the joy of parenting. Forgoing so much of the status that a mother would get from her child in these days. No manipulation here. This is not Hannah offering something else to God in order to get what she really wants. What she really wants is a child who knows the Lord, who is dedicated to him, who will serve him wholeheartedly all the days of his life. Now let me give a quick sidebar here to parents, especially given all the pregnancies we do have at the moment and new births recently, which is wonderful news. Parents, what do you most desire for your child? What do you most want for them in life? Good health, good education, a spouse, a loving family, career success, financial sufficiency, all good things. But without spiritual health, without a good spiritual education, without a loving relationship with the the Lord, ultimately all these good things will come to nothing. And that is why Hannah prays as she does and why Hannah makes this vow as she does. And of course, it's through this prayer and through this vow that God answers her prayer and gives her a son and his name is Samuel and he grows up to be the godly priest and prophet that this nation desperately needs. Here then is an example for all of us. An example of humble, faithful, persevering prayer. 
if we want to turn around in our lives, our national church, or the nation as a whole, it has got to start here. Calling upon the Lord of hosts, the one with all power, the one who truly can bring change to our lives and this nation, who can do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. It has got to start here. It has got to start with repenting from our own failed attempts to lead our own lives. To call our church leaders, national leaders, to repentance if need be. But let's be clear, the focus here is on the failed religious leadership. And we need to see how serious it is, how terribly wrong it is when church leaders do not stand up for God's truth as revealed in God's word, but spread their own misinformation about what God says and what he doesn't say. We need to mourn over our sin. We need to pour out our soul to the Lord. We need to reflect on God's actions in the past and call on him to act in the same way for us today. Now, what does that mean exactly? We're not Hannah. The church is not a nation state today. Samuel is long gone in the past. What does it look like for you and I to call on the Lord Almighty today? Well, let's look thirdly and finally at Hannah's wide-reaching prayer in verses 1 to 10 of chapter 2. I wonder what you made of this prayer um, in verses 1 to 10 as it was read out. Did you think that Hannah was overstating her deliverance somewhat in these verses? Does that question make sense to you? Do they think there was something, something more going on? I mean, it's an incredible thing what happens. She gets a child you know, from a barren womb and certainly talks about that in verses 1 to 5. But by the end of the prayer, in verses 6 to 10, she's talking about the foundations of the earth. She's talking about the judgment of the whole world. And you're thinking, really, Hannah? I mean, okay, it was amazing what happened, but you really think this has significance you know, all the way through there? Have a look at verse 1. Even there at the beginning, my mouth boasts over my enemies, plural. Verse 4, the bows of the warriors are broken. Look, no doubt Penina was like, like an, was like an enemy to her, taunting her mercilessly for all those years. But Hannah sees something much bigger going on here. Hannah sees in her own deliverance a picture of a much larger one. Not just for the nation of Israel, but ultimately for the whole world. And this ultimate deliverance, she knows, will not come through her son Samuel. Now look at verse 10, the end of it. God will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now again, like that phrase, the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts, this is the first time in the Bible that we get the Messiah, God's anointed king, spoken of in this way. And it is from the lips of Hannah. A king who would bring ultimate hope, ultimate deliverance to the whole world. And if you do know your wider Bible story, of course, you know who this is. One who was born not of a barren womb, but a virgin womb. One who was dedicated to the Lord all the days of his life. One who lived a perfect life of holiness, verse 2, just like God. Who fed the hungry, verse 5 who himself went down to the grave, verse 6, for our sin and our salvation, but was raised from the dead, verse 6, 
who humbled the proud, verse 7, who exalted the lowly, verse 7, who will one day judge the ends of the earth, verse 10. What does it mean to call upon the Lord Almighty today? It means call upon Jesus Christ and let him be the leader that we all need. Come to him for forgiveness. Come to him for power to change. We said at the start, there's a leadership crisis in the world right now, and many people do not know where to turn. Some of you are turning to yourselves. You're thinking, look, don't trust the leaders. I'll do my bit. In my own personal sphere of influence, in many ways, that's a wonderful thing. Good for you. And Greta Thunberg's probably come up because of that. But to try and live the whole of your life by yourself, to trust only in yourself, for you to need to make sense of everything, everything that comes at you, for you to be the solution, for you to face death alone, there is too much for any human being to handle. The pressure it puts on you, the weight that you feel, we are not meant to. That is what Jesus Christ is for. Just two words, get up, and a dead girl comes back to life. Just two words, come out, and Lazarus, he's dead in the tomb. He walks out. It is that easy for him. Life from a barren womb, life from a barren tomb, Life from any barrenness you are facing right now. Will you come to Jesus Christ? Will you let him in? Will you let him rule? Will you let him take charge? And I say this to you if you're Christian or if you're looking into Christian things because we all struggle with this, because we all want to be in charge, because we all want to have the final say on certain matters. But I wonder how that's working out for you. Jesus Christ is the one true perfect leader we all need. And he has come for us. He lived for us, he died for us, he rose for us, and he's coming back for us. Let him lead you today. Let him lead, let him lead you this week. Let him lead you all the days of your life. And let me pray that for us now. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much indeed for this start of 1 Samuel, this bleak time for God's people, this time of hopelessness, helplessness, because of their sin, this moral, spiritual decline, because of this crisis of leadership. But wow, you are such a gracious God. You see our misery. You see the state we're in. You work in Hannah. You can bring life to her barren womb, and you can give life to a barren nation. So please, would we stop trying to live our lives by ourselves? And let you truly rule and reign and be the leader that we need. Today, tomorrow, all the days of our lives, we ask it for Jesus' sake.